Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all uh, as part in, in this worship service. About 10 years ago, I actually was an intern here um, at the church, and at the time, the church was uh, at Westerly Road, and there was discussion about what would they call this new building on Bun Drive. And um, I do love the name Stonehill Church, but I am a little disappointed that the name I was most enthusiastic about, Bun Love Temple, was not chosen as the name for this particular location. Apparently didn't get very far in the voting process. And from then on, I was sort of barred from having any say whatsoever about what should be called uh, anything in this church moving forward. It's actually on my HR file to this day. So, um, Well, we are continuing our series this morning in Ephesians. And Ephesians, perhaps more than any other book of the New Testament, tells us about the identity of the church. When a Christian person is asked, who are you? From what we've been seeing in Ephesians, that person is going to say quite a lot about who God is. We are who God says that we are. The church is what God says it is. John Calvin, the Genevan reformer and pastor, said this, Without the knowledge of God, without knowing who God is, there is no knowledge of who we are. To know God is to know ourselves. By way of review, we were looking at the uh, verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians, and that's where Paul explains that the question of who we are stands in relation not to just God in general, but specifically in relation to who God is in Jesus Christ. The questions, who is God and who am I, are answered for every person in the one person of Jesus Christ. Paul shows us that what God did in Jesus is true for us. Our stories are stitched together with Christ's story. Jesus died on the cross for sin, so we died to sin. Jesus rose from the grave, so we will be raised to new life. Jesus has been given a glorious resurrected body, and we too will be given a resurrected body. Jesus Christ's future is our future. This is what Paul means about being in Christ. When we put our trust in Jesus, God gives us a life in him that we otherwise could never have on our own. And you see, Paul's heart is overflowing, and he bursts into this long, energetic song about all those blessings we have in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul isn't just putting out cold, distant propositions for people to scratch their beards or nod their heads to. He's filled with God's Spirit, and he's like a jazz musician. He's climbing up and down the octave so that these Ephesian believers feel the melody of God's grace in their lives. These Ephesians are elected, they are predestined, they are adopted, they are redeemed. The Father has given them his love through the Son, and the Spirit is the guarantee that it is true and secure. God held nothing back. He gave the fullness of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring these Ephesians into life with him. And Paul's response to all this wonderful news 
is to sing and bless God's name from his prison cell. How fitting. You know, maybe these words, predestination or election, uh, you, fi- you find somewhat confusing. Or maybe you're like me and you can get lost in these debates. But like music, you don't have to understand it all to enjoy its benefits. If you can clap your hands and sing God's praise because of what you have in Jesus Christ, there is no more fitting response to the news of God's election and predestination. But these truths don't just make Paul sing, they also make him pray, and that's what our text is today. It's it's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. You see, praise of God and prayer are connected in the Christian life. This morning, after we sang a song together, we prayed. And that, and that is also connected in the letter to the Ephesians. So Paul's prayer, like his praise, is one long, magnificent sentence in the original language from verses 15 to 23. But we're only going to be looking at verses 15 through 20 today. So let's look at Paul's prayer in three parts this morning. The first is Paul's response to the church's reputation. Second is Paul's requests for the church. And third, Paul's confidence in Christ's reign. So the church's reputation, Paul's requests, and Christ's reign. Let's look first at the church's reputation. You see, these Ephesian Christians are not what they once were. Before believing in Jesus... They spent a lot of time trying to get spiritual forces and gods to do for them what they would like. They didn't have Amazon or websites to suggest products that would promise a satisfying life. But they did have magic books with special incantations. And these incantations could help them get things. Cure ailments, get pregnant, uh, bring material blessing, protect them from other evil forces. But as you would imagine, there really was no guarantee that any of that would work. And those practices were quite dark. They had no secure foundation of hope for their future. But when they came to faith in Jesus, these practices were stopping. But they didn't stop right away. Because Luke tells us in Acts 19 that it wasn't brand new believers that were burning their magic books in the center of, of the city, but people that have already put their, put their trust in Jesus Christ. They still held on to some of those beliefs after they believed. But as they started to trust in Jesus Christ, those practices were put away. Perhaps you can relate to this. Not always when we first come to Jesus, the stuff from our old life goes away right away. It takes time. It takes growth. And that's what Paul is is celebrating here. Now, you might think that this is some sort of narrow-minded practice. You know, you have to burn everything that isn't Christian. But that's not what's going on here. You see, these books represented the bondage these Ephesians were in before they were converted to Jesus. Uh, This is like the moment when someone who's in a toxic romantic relationship Uh, finally decides to leave and walk out the door. This is like the moment when someone who struggles with alcohol use dumps all the remaining liquor down the drain to start a life in recovery. 
This is like the moment when a student steps away from a peer group that negatively influences them in their relationship with Christ and others. The faith of the Ephesian believers was growing, and word of that growth got to Paul's prison cell. But not only does Paul make mention of their faith, he also hears about their love for one another. Paul says they had love for all the saints. Love that reaches all people is no small matter. Ephesus was a diverse, populous, and prosperous city. The churches in Ephesus had Jews and Gentiles together in one church. Uh, They had different ethnic backgrounds together in their churches. They had people from different socioeconomic statuses together. And the love of Christ cut through every inherited or human-made difference. The love of Christ crossed every division in their churches. I think that Paul's praise for the Ephesians is a good thing to think about as our country heads to an election. It seems that political divisions are getting in the way of Christians loving each other. I wonder, what do the Ephesians do to help them love each other through all their major differences? Could it have been, you know, when Paul's talking about election, or when he's talking about adoption, or when he's talking about redemption, or when he's talking about predestination, he's talking about the person sitting next to me. He's talking about the person sitting across the political aisle from me. And if God holds them so close, am I going to push them away? Brothers and sisters, as important of an election this is, If we fail to embrace each other as fellow believers, we are putting ourselves on the wrong side of God's election. And that's one election we cannot afford to get wrong. The church of Ephesus loved each other through all their differences, politics included. I love what Douglas Steer said. He was a long-term, uh, long-time professor at Haverford College in Pennsylvania in the mid-20th century. He makes this wonderful observation. He says, Spokes on a tire are closest to each other when they are near to the hub. And so it is with the Christian life. The more our faith brings us to Christ, who is the center, who is our hub, the closer we will be to one another. For Paul, faith in Christ and love for one another are inseparable. And you know, Christ's love continues to tear down barriers. As a teenager, Jocelyn James was heavy in a life of addiction. Uh, She committed uh, many crimes to support her habit, and she was arrested several times by the same officer, Officer Terrell. And on one occasion, he he communicated to her, I will pray for you in a sincere way. Well, sometime after that, Jocelyn started to enter into a life of recovery. She put aside her addiction, and she even got to a point where she started a treatment center to help women in their addiction. One day, as she was looking at her Facebook feed, she saw that Officer Terrell's daughter 
uh, had put out a notice that he was in need of a kidney. And she said, without hesitation, she sensed that the Holy Spirit prompted her to offer herself as a donor. Well, this past July, there was a successful transplant. And shortly after the surgery, there was a picture of Jocelyn standing arm in arm with Officer Terrell. Big smiles on both their faces. And Officer Terrell had a um, sweatshirt on that declared God's love uh, in Jesus Christ. You see, in our current system, a police officer and a drug offender, they're on opposite sides. But the love of Christ is not a respecter of our divisions. Nothing will prevent him from bringing all things to himself. Nothing. Now, not too many people would disagree that this is a touching story, that that this is uh, something to celebrate. It was written up in, a, uh, in an approving way in the news outlet. But sometimes Christian love, uh, it will be culturally approved, but other times it will be culturally scorned. You know, when Paul spread the gospel in Ephesus, the business owners that were profiting from the sale of idols got really angry at Paul. They chased him out of the city. And the Ephesian Christians burned all their, ma- burned their magic books, that, the value of which was thousands and thousands of dollars. These Christians were threatening the stability of city life. And their fellow citizens got angry at them. Why are, this, why are they disrupting business life? Why are they disrupting our religious life? So here's the tension. Sometimes the demonstra- demonstration of Christian faith and love will be approved by society, and other times it won't. So how do you learn to live in that tension? How do you know what to do? Well, there are no easy answers for Christians then or for us now as a church. But Paul's prayer request for the Ephesians is a good place to start. Let's look at that. In verse 17, Paul says, Uh, prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, and that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. When I was a teenager, I had an x-ray done. And um, when the doctor walked in, I sat up on the examining table, and he put those x-rays up on the light board. And I leaned in, and I said, uh, oh, yeah, I see it. It's uh, over there. It doesn't look so good. And he said, well, actually... It's over, there, it's, uh, it's over here, and um, it looks quite good to me. I said, I said to him, all right, I'll let you have this one this time, but next time. No, you see, we were both looking at the same x-ray, but we didn't see the same thing. And it wasn't until he explained it to me that I could actually see what was there. And the same is true for how the Spirit teaches the church. Through prayer, the spirit of wisdom opens our eyes to see God's power in the present moment, to see the power of the resurrection here and now. Now, what Paul says is very significant. The spirit of wisdom and revelation Paul prays we would have is the same spirit that we heard about from Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 11. There, Isaiah describes the Holy Spirit as one of wisdom, and understanding, and one of might, 
That's the spirit at work in the midst of our congregation and in every church that confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. The same spirit that anointed Jesus Christ for his mission is the same spirit that guides the church today. And the problem is that we don't, just, we don't see it. It's not a matter of if God is working in the world, it's that the church has a vision problem. We are like Thomas, looking straight at the resurrection, still living with Friday's doubt. So one of the works of the Spirit is to give the church updated glasses prescriptions so that the church can continue its work in the world in every generation. So let's look at these specific requests that Paul prays for the, for the Ephesian church. In verse 18, he says he wants them to see the hope to which they were called. You know, when these Ephesians saw darkness around them, they remember that it was an opportunity for God's light to shine. When they were excluded from parts of city life, they remember that they now belong to one another as God's family. When they suffered bodily, they remember that Christ will raise them. The hope that Christ brought them was the anchor of their souls. I love what Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks says. He writes, a Christian will part with anything rather than his hope. He knows that hope will keep the heart both from aching and breaking and from fainting and sinking. He knows that nothing shall extinguish this hope. Before I became a pastor at Stonehill, I worked in the addiction and mental health treatment field for a number of years. At one time, I was talking to a colleague uh, about a case that she was having uh, difficulty with. She had worked with this individual for quite some time, uh, but she was sort of hitting roadblocks. She was losing hope. Now, she knew that if she was losing hope, the chances of helping someone uh, were decreasing. And so she was sharing with me about this. It wasn't a matter of skill. She was excellent at her work. She was probably uh, the best uh, counselor um, at, at the time. Um, and she said to me, you know, I, I, guess, I guess the only thing we can do is have faith that they would look within themselves and find reasons to change. Isn't that all we can hope for? Then she said to me, how don't you lose hope? I said to her, well, I don't know about you, but um, when I look within myself to find reasons to change, um, it's not very convincing because I'm not very good at seeing myself. In fact, when I look within myself to find reasons to change, most of the time I find reasons to say exactly the way I am because I'm just happy with it. But one of the things that does give me hope is this, that in the places where our skills and our interventions can't reach, God is able to reach and God's spirit is able to work. When I'm counseling someone, whenever I'm talking to anyone, I don't believe it's just the two of us in the room together. I believe God is working in those places. And so there was a pregnant pause not expecting to hear that in, in um, a secular work environment. 
And she started to talk, and as she was talking, I noticed a little bit of a weight fall off of her shoulders, and, and she said to me, um, I don't know why, but for some reason, I find that very comforting. Very comforting to know that I'm not the only one trying to make this change. You see, that's the hope that we have. When the Holy Spirit begins a work in a person's life, he never leaves, his, he never leaves the site until he's finished the job. There is always reason to hope as Christians. Now look at what Paul does next. He gets the Ephesians to look back to the hope to which they were called, and then he's going to get them to look forward to their glorious inheritance. And this is Paul's second request on his, on his list there. So when we look at the glorious inheritance, it's true that we, being united to Christ, are going to be co-heirs with Christ, meaning we are going to get the rewards for his obedience. I think that that is true, and I think that Paul talks about that um, in, in other letters. But when Paul talks about God's glorious inheritance here, I think he's actually saying we are God's glorious inheritance. Just think about this. Out of all the things that are all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God could have or do, we are the source of his delight. And this has always been God's legacy with his people. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29, it says that God's people are his inheritance that he brought out of the land of Egypt with power. In Malachi, it says that God's people are his treasured possession. We are God's glorious inheritance that will one day be with him. Now, this news that we are God's glorious inheritance addresses a major identity problem that we experience as humans. You see, we are, too, we are tempted to make too much of ourselves. That's pride. And we're also tempted to devalue ourselves because of shame. Some people are prone to one and some are prone to the other. And both can exist in the same person on the same day. But the news that, that we are God's glorious inheritance addresses both of these human challenges. For the person who feels devalued, this truth shows us that the God who, of the universe prizes us above everything else in all of creation. Nothing that you have done or nothing that has ever been done to you can devalue your worth in Jesus Christ. And for the person who makes too much of themselves, maybe thinks that they're the smartest person in the room or focuses on their life achievements at the expense of others, well, this truth shows us something too, and that is they're settling for much too less. Why would we settle with being pleased with ourselves when we could have God's delight in us through his son. But the way in which we experience God's delight is our recognition that we are sinners in need of God's mercy. That's how we experience the joy of knowing that we are God's glorious inheritance. So Paul prays that these Ephesian Christians would look back to the hope, and then he asks them to, to look forward to their uh, glory, uh, God's glorious inheritance.
But then he spends a lot of time in verses 19 through 23 to have them look at the present moment of the power of the resurrection. Paul can't help himself. He's like a teacher laboring on the fundamentals again and again. Our hope and our inheritance are only possible because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and he reigns. So let's briefly take a look at this now, at Christ's reign. Paul says he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the current power supply for every believer. Paul proclaims that Jesus sits enthroned over the entire universe There isn't a power or a force or a structure or a God or a ruler that doesn't stop at Jesus' scepter. Your greatest fear stops in its tracks at your Savior's footstool. But here's where the breakdown happens. And this is true for us as much as it was true for the Ephesians. We may not say this aloud, but all of us are reacting to all kinds of forces that govern our lives. They could be our fears, our insecurities, our questions, our doubts, our fear about future circumstances. They push and pull us in all directions, and we try to do something about it. Now, we may not cast spells or say incantations, but we sure try to control them or try to get away from them. We may overeat or restrict our eating. We buy things. We exercise too much or not at all. We distract ourselves. We restlessly analyze. We play video games. We watch other people play video games. We watch sports. We watch sports when no one else in the stadium is there to watch sports. We isolate. We binge watch TV, we daydream, we, you fill in the blank for yourself. We do these things to try to eliminate the feelings of our troubles or to run away from our troubles. But we do not have to anxiously wrestle our troubles and we don't have to try to run away from them. You are in Christ and Christ is on the throne And Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our troubles are real, but they do not reign. God's all-wise spirit is at work in you, is at work in your small group, is at work in the church. And God's wisdom that reconciled the world to himself will help you make sense of your life. And not only do we have God's wisdom, we have God's very power that raised Jesus from the dead That's at work too in us. So that means whatever troubles you are facing now, yes, one day you will be released from them for sure. But it also means that right now, God's Spirit is making you the kind of person that can have fears but not be paralyzed by them. To have troubles but not to be ruled by them. Because we have been given the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, as Paul writes 
in 1 Timothy. And by God's grace, that will be our legacy for the ages. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, with so much going on in our world and in our country, maybe even in our homes, Lord, we need your resurrection power now. So help us to see it. Remove the scales from our eyes so that we would behold the beauty of Jesus Christ in the present moment. So that we, like the Ephesians, would have an enduring hope. So that we can be your witnesses, not just to one another, but to the watching world. Father, forgive us when we have trusted in ourselves or when we've allowed our allegiances to block our love for one another and make us the sort of people now, we ask, that can declare your love boldly to a world that so desperately needs this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.